It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome and good morning. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I am your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. I'm so happy that you made it to class this morning. I'm going to be honest, I'm barely making it. <laughs> I just have been in back-to-back travel and events and activities and, you know, my body is not as young as it used to be and she is upset about my level of rest and I'm looking forward to this coming Tuesday where I have blocked off my entire schedule and I'm just taking a day off in the middle of the week because I'm tired. <laughs> and most recently, just this uh, uh, past week, for a couple of days, I was in Atlantic City for the NAACP 113th convention. Shout out to all of the Urban View listeners who stopped me to take selfies, to talk to me about how they listen to Sunday Civics, how they listen to Karen and Clay and Laree. Thank you so much for walking with all of us throughout the week as we try to give you news information and tactics for you to hopefully take action where you are. And I would suspect that that is what you're doing because if people are coming up to me at NAACP conventions, that means that they are active and involved in their communities. Definitely NAACP members are. So shout out to all of you who are NAACP members and also listen to the show. I need y'all. Y'all make sure to stay connected and drop your email address by going to sundaycivics.org. As you know, last year, Sunday Civics was nominated in the new podcast category for news and information and I am going for go that last year was a test run because it was the first time that the category debuted this coming year. I'm going to be submitting the show again. And I need all of you who were coming up to me to take selfies, who were coming up to me to talk about how much you enjoy the show and take all of the information to take action in your neighborhoods, in your community. I need all of y'all to be ambassadors for Sunday Civics when I submit the show again for an Image Award. And if you're not involved in NAACP, no worries. You can also be involved in this action when we launch the campaign in September to get Sunday Civics awarded. I don't always seek out awards, but I think the Image Award from NAACP will be something significant to add, although we can say Image Award nominated Sunday Civics right now. But how are all of you doing? <laughs> you know, this is the problem with me not having a call in show. So y'all have to hit me up on social media and email. There's the heat wave that is going across the country. People are trying to stay cool. At the same time, there are so many different issues happening at one time, in addition to a midterm election that is slowly creeping upon us and getting people ready to, as I call it, getting vote ready to make sure 
sure that people are ready to participate in the election. And for those who are choosing to opt out of participating in the election, although you have some time to make a different decision, but for those who are choosing to opt out, there are still issues in our community that we definitely want to take action on. And whether it's before election day or after, I am one who believes that civic engagement happens all year round, happens every day. And as you know, I use this show to teach people about how to get involved and take action. So with that, I am doing a class on 10 ways to get civically engaged before and after election day with the Sankofa Summer School that's coming up this coming Wednesday. Shout out to Feminista Jones for hosting this each year. I think this is her second year for Sankofa Summer School. And if you have not registered, don't fret. I will be offering this in many different ways as different ways that you can get civically engaged on or before election day. So watch out for that information. You can go to sundaycivics.org and check out when it'll be offered next. But the this one is for Sankofa Summer School. You can see all of the other courses that are being offered this summer at SankofaSummerSchool.com. And I am happy to be one of the instructors for Sankofa Summer School this year. And if you are a Nubian, that will also be something that will be offered. I'm sending an email to Karen to make sure that we get that started up either late this summer or in the fall to get people registered and engaged as well and to help you take action in your local communities and how to build up a squad that can really build up power. That was the NAACP theme this year for our convention, This is Power. And politics is all about a power, is all about power. Politics is all about power. And you need to amass power, not only by voting, because that's not the only thing, but there are some other things that you can do to amass and demonstrate power in your community and control of your community, of your body, of your education. And we want to make sure that you are equipped with all of the tools necessary to do so. And that's why we love it here at Sunday Civics for you to tune in. So what are we talking about? This morning, this Sunday morning, I want to talk about work. There have been a number of articles and research papers and others that I've been following and reading as it pertains to work and what employment includes, what jobs include. There's all this conversation about the great resignation, about people leaving their jobs. Obviously, a lot of this impact is regard is attributed to COVID, but there's some other things as well as people are looking for different types of life balances. They're looking for different ways that their lives are not centered around what they do as it pertains to employment. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of research, a lot of things happening regarding the employment space. But one thing I do know for sure is that in places like New York and Philadelphia, even Alaska, a lot of municipal agencies are struggling 
to both hire and retain employees. Read a lot of discussions about this, about people resigning, I guess, and retiring from state employment or municipal employment or county employment. And so the workforce is diminishing in these positions. And I, I invited a number of people to talk about this because I... I know from history that for a lot of particularly black families, that's how they entered the middle class is by having stable employment through uh, a state job, a city job. It allowed them to raise their families. It allowed them to buy their homes to some of them, even buy summer homes, send their children to school, whether it be local community colleges or universities. And so at the same time, we're seeing like this huge loss of people in municipal employment. We are also seeing that there is a population of people that are looking for work. And so people and then we have corporations that are saying they can't find people to work. So something is not sitting right with me <laughs> about this. It's just not sitting right. And I've had this conversation with the, oh God, what is his name? I can't remember a congressman that joined us and we were talking about for some of the people that need employment, small creation of small businesses is not going to address the unemployment crisis amongst that population. Like you need large scale pro- public works projects that actually can really put people People to work. And I would think that municipal and state employment is another way that you can actually get people what we call good jobs, where they have coverage as it pertains to healthcare coverage, they have a livable wage. That's what you think. But in reading, doing a deep dive, even in the New York Times on the New York City employees, a lot of people aren't happy about the wages or about the uh, coverage, the healthcare coverage that they receive. And that actually contributes to them resigning or seeking other employment. All of this is confusing to me because I don't understand how you have so many people looking for work while at the same time having both private companies and public municipal and state folks saying that they can't find people to work. There's something here that I'm not grasping. Maybe some of y'all are grasping it. I'm just not. And at the same time, we, we think about that and we're thinking about adults, grown folks, you know, grown folks married with kids, grown single parents with children or and things like that. But there is a vulnerable population as well. There is that under 24 population. How do they enter the workforce and how are they set up for long-term employment that allows them to start their families, to start careers? Everybody is not going to be or doesn't want to enter employment and they're going to be a small business owner and that's what their job like there needs to be somebody some base of middle class workers and middle class consumers although I you know I don't think everybody should be viewed as consumers but there still needs to be that base and I feel like there's something missing economically that we're not quite touching or maybe there's some economists somewhere who are researching and thinking about this but The reason why this is related to civics 
is because we're seeing a lot of labor unions, workers in general, organizing for better pay, for better healthcare coverage, for better working conditions. So that is related. But then also these municipal jobs, these state jobs are connected to our civic workforce. So I'm interested and what's happening. And this morning, we're going to start with the young people. (laughs) That's where I want to start. I want to start with a population of people that we don't think of the most. They're usually an afterthought. We're thinking about what they lack, the deficit that they have. So we're starting with the young people. And I want to talk about how we get young people engaged to start their employment, to start their economic base. And we're going to be talking to Marjorie Parker, who is the president and CEO of Jobs First NYC, although she has been in the workforce space for some time. And Jobs First is not only New York based. I want to talk about how do we help young people that vulnerable population of 16 to 24, how do we help them start their employment journey, making sure that they are also not disenfranchised and that they are not, their work isn't devalued. So we'll bring Marjorie Parker to the front of the class to talk about workforce development in that way. And then, you know, later on, probably next week, because, you know, I'll get to talking with Marjorie. We'll also talk about the the state of work and, and really talking to researchers about the economy, this recession that everybody keeps saying is looming and how that will have an impact on wages and on the state of work. So we'll talk more about that when we come back here on Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Here joining me at the front of the class is Marjorie Parker. She's the president and CEO of Jobs First NYC, which is a New York City nonprofit that creates and advances solutions, breaks down barriers to transform the system supporting young adults in their community. So welcome to the front of the class for the first time, Marjorie Parker. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. No problem. I want to get to, like, hopefully I can make this fit in time because I have so many questions to ask you about this because I read a lot about this, but I'm not like involved in the policy advocacy, but I care very deeply about it. So hopefully I'm going to keep on time. But (laughs) I want to start where we ask every guest to start by you sharing with us the story of your first civic action. So, you know, I'm I'm from a little island called Jamaica, and my family were always very active in politics. So my, I think my first civic action was around voting, um, signing up people to vote uh, with my family in Jamaica. In the U.S., I I feel like my first civic action was in college. We had a, um, a blackface incident where some young men from the uh, football team 
um, participating in a lip sync contest, um, um, put on blackface. And I'm sure, you know, they, they, they didn't know the history as they shared then, but it required me at the time as vice president of the International Student Club to really um, take to pen to paper with my group to really to write about, um, you know, what that meant with, with my, with my um, colleagues from um, International Black Student Club. And, you know, it led to this, you know, multicultural conversation that Fordham University launched and a multicultural club that launched looking at race and racism on campus and really educating people around behaviors that they think are okay but are not. So I would say that was my first civic action um, that required me to do more than go with my family to sign people up for, for voting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so very much for sharing that. Now, you know, the reason why I wanted to bring you to the show is, you know, right now I'm in this space, in addition to being head of Brooklyn NAACP, I'm also the legislative director for the state. <clears throat> And as I'm looking at, <coughs> excuse me, what should be on our agenda for the next year for the our legislative and policy agenda, I'm looking around my community and I hear a lot of conversations about from employers saying they can't find people to work. And then I know being in, steeped in my community where people are either underemployed, meaning they're doing like one or two like jobs that they are overqualified for that, you know, minimum wage, <laughs> you know, and trying to make ends meet or they're unemployed in general because they can't find work that can help them, you know, live productive lives and support their families and themselves. And so I'm, there's this just gap that exists that I'm trying to, I'm reading a lot about and trying to determine how do we address this on a policy or legislative way? Because I feel like it's not really being talked about, <laughs> you know, and particularly coming out of COVID, but there's a particular population that you work with that has also been of interest. Some call it disconnected youth, others opportunity youth. And that's that 16 to 24 population that may not be in school, meaning high school or college or any trade or anything like that, and also not working. And we know these young people in our community, some of them probably live in our household. So let's talk about in general what that what that what that looks like, right? And and, and also the terminology, disconnected youth versus opportunity youth. So um, I thank you for that and thank for, you know, spotlighting this group of young people who, you know, are a nationwide, you know, where the term opportunity youth is used and it describes a range of young people in that age group who are between the ages of 16 and 84, who might be out of work and out of school, which is the term that Jobs First NYC likes to use as we like to describe the condition that a young person is currently in because it, it's not permanent, it's static. It can be static. It's not permanent. It can be um, um, transitional. And um, these are young people using the broader national term who are out of school, out of work, who might have had engagement with the criminal justice system, who um, are may have mental health issues, who may have disabilities, um, and who haven't connected to the right um, sets of services 
um, or supports that can get them connected to, um, you know, training, education, um, and other supportive services like housing. So for young people, 18 to 24 in particular, housing is a big issue, right? Uh, unstable housing means it's hard to, to have a job and to keep a job because you're not sure where you're um, going to stay. Now, this group of, of young people makes up, it, after COVID, at the end of 2020, there were close to maybe 11 million of these young people who were out of work in other school. In New York City, 35% of the young, of people that lost their jobs in that first round of COVID, they were young adults between the ages of 18 and 24. Um, nationwide, that number went up to um, almost 10 million. Currently, we think that number is about 5 point something million nationwide. In New York City, that number is about 185,000. So those are really, really big numbers for America's next generation of talent. What we say is that you can't import talent forever. So you're gonna have to develop your homegrown talents. These are the young people and they're mostly young people of color. So that's the group of people. That's the challenge that we have. In terms of policy, you know, we have not heard, you know, uh, nationally, a lot of explicit talk about this population, but there've been conversation now around the 18 to 24 year old age group and what the federal government could be doing around the programs that they invest in. Um, and at the city level, um, here in New York City, at the state level, some conversation around what should happen to this group of young people. But we haven't seen a lot of explicit policies um, from this group. So there are things that we've been working on with our national partners nationwide around um, pushing for subsidized employment. So we were excited about the Build That Better bill because in there were um, several bills that we thought would have benefited this uh, particular age group and this particular group of young people around some of the climate um, bill that would have generated some jobs uh, for, um, for young people and run some, run some of the subsidized employment components of that that we think would be ideal for young people who are trying to connect to jobs or opportunities but haven't connected as yet. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons, well, the main reason why there is a focus on this population is because, you know, it's not just having a summer job or having a job on the side, right? Like th th this time period of a, a young person's life, you know, in general, from your late teens to mid twenties is it's supposed to be this critical period where you develop yourself as an adult, right? Your identity, what you want to be, what you, how you want to walk into this world. And I, you know, I'm trying to change my language and not just saying, you know, what you want to be in terms of work, right? Like that our lives have to be, always be centered around work. But, you know, that time period is significant in building a dependence and actually building a life, like those skills that you develop and learn there, that standpoint. Can you talk a bit about what happens when, you know, that's disrupted? Like how, like what their future is likely to be or not be if they miss those critical, that critical piece during that time period? So, you know, Georgetown University just came up with a report, which I just cannot remember, but I'll send that the name to you. They really look at this set of young people and, and show that over time, because of this disrupted learning, um, disrupted skills training, disrupted connection to jobs, that over their lifetime, 
they made very low progress around um, better economic opportunities and little to no economic mobility for them or their, often their children. So that's what this disruption means, that a lot of young Americans will not connect over their lifetime to the opportunities that can be transformational to their lives and to their, their children's life. And so it, it is a serious issue. I mean, I know that, you know, for example, you know, across high schools and across our nonprofit agencies and across colleges, there is a, you know, a, a very um, concentrated effort to engage these young people to make sure that they're connected to um, education, they connect to, 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 to um, um, training, but also they're connected to advocacy, right? So that they can learn um, what they need to do and what, who they need to talk to and how they need to present um, their neighborhoods and their experiences to decision makers who can write and create policies that are responsive to their need. You know, NYU just started a program, right? It's around housing, right? And housing is a big issue that no one talks about. And housing is directly connected to a young person's um, ability to obtain or retain employment. But a lot of times young people may not know really how to have those conversations around housing needs. It's more than about, you know, well, I need you to fix my house, right? But it's more around more consistent housing for young people. I need to be able to access housing that I can, you know, I make $25,000 a year. I need housing that I can pay rent at because $25,000 a year doesn't pay um, a lot of rent in a lot of places. But a lot of people don't really talk about that. They don't talk about these range, young people in the last Great Recession, 2008, and this is much worse. They were at the back of the line of the employment line. Do you know where they got most of their jobs? Retail, food service, hospitality, low-wage jobs. So that a lot of young people, black and brown kids in New York City and amongst this close to 10 million after um, um, at the end of 2020 are in low-wage jobs. So I think that um, we're teaching young people to be advocates, to be able to go out and talk to legislators and to other decision makers around what their experience is so that policies can be grounded in, in the experience of young people. And I have to tell you, I don't hear a lot of young people's voice currently at any level of government um, and that we need to be talking to them more. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have some young people on the show to talk about that, not only in terms of this, in terms of employment and school, but also in public safety and the community. I'm having them produce a whole series here on the show in the fall. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they put together from there. So just to put into some context, I know we talk about this population here in New York City and Jobs First is based here in New York City, but this is a nationwide issue. There are close to, I think, what is it, 4 million or is it 4 million 4 point, young people? 4.5 million standing at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Right. In addition, there is a report, the Measure of America report that says the average disconnected youth costs $37,450 a year in government services. So, uh, you know, put that in context with in general services, as they go further into adulthood, we talk about this as it pertains to education in the schools to prison pipeline about how much it costs us overall when we don't invest early on. And so there are some real 
still, you know, as you mentioned, there is an absence of policy and legislation that specifically deal with this. As you mentioned, there is some, a little bit of stuff in the infrastructure, a little bit (laughs) in the infrastructure bill in terms of that stuff, but it's not a well-defined, um, you know, policy prescription on the federal, state, and local level to really address it, it. It's obviously because it's young people, we take this paternalistic view. Yes. And even as it pertains to public safety in our communities, you know, the mayor recently had a meeting about public safety and even talking about, you know, who are the people experiencing violence as well as committing violence as young people, but yet they're not in at the table you know, and in the conversation. So I know Jobs First is working heavily on this issue. Talk to us a bit about that and actually what does it take to actually engage and build support and opportunities for this population? Um, Thank you. Um, So, you know, we are, you know, one of the um, early recognitions um, for the forming of Jobs First was the... The, the was the, the thought that you know a lot of the larger employment marketplace um, doesn't really see young people, especially these type of young people, um, in terms of you know places and people who are um, you know who are critical to their talent um, development pipeline or critical to their um, to the success of their companies. Um, one thing that we're working on with the city of New York this summer, um, being led by Deputy Mayor Sheena Wright, is building and strengthening partnership with employers. So as you know, this summer, um, you know, Mayor Adams and his team expanded the summer youth employment program from 75,000 young people to 100 and 100,000 young people. That's a lot. You need a lot more employers to participate so that more of these young people could get jobs. So what we're doing this summer is working with our five borough chamber of commerce is to um, to identify small and mid-sized employers to help them build their capacity and that comes in the form of training, understanding what their needs are, understanding what challenges they have, working with young workers um, and really helping them to figure out how to do this. What this means is that we can have 100,000 young people having work-based learning experience um, this summer. Now, I want to back up just a little bit to talk about, you know, the larger issue around this particular group and talent development is that, you know, they have what we call barriers to entry um, to the marketplace. And one barrier to entry for a lot of young people to the marketplace is that they may be well qualified for a job, but a lot of job applications now require a personality assessment test. So, you know, you and I, when we got- Wait, 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 wait. So to apply for the part of the application process is a personality assessment? Yes. So, you know, when you and I applied for our first job, right? I remember applying for my first job. I walked in, I filled out an application, I handed it to the manager and I got interviewed on the spot and I got hired. Yeah. now, that's how I got my job at the mall at the limited. Exactly. <laughs> so that's not the experience anymore for young people. So now they those job applications are online. So normally you go in, fill out your demographic information and then your work experience. Now you do that and you have to take sometimes a 200 battery test 
that is all about that. Imagine being 16, taking a personality assessment test, having never worked, but getting a question like, when you work with other people, what do you like about them? Or what don't you like about them? Or what did you like about your last supervisor? Like there are all these questions that are mm. work experience related that do that young people can never ever answer. And the other thing is you don't even know if your answer is the right answer or the next answer. So mm -hmm. in 2014, for about three and a half years, four years, we conducted a study. Um, we reached out to 40 employees, including ones that you and I might visit, like, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, McDonald's, <laughs> Burger King, um, and some of the big retail um, stores like Target, for example. And we reached out to them to find out you know, when, why are they requiring to take, you know, young people to take a personality test when young people brain, you know, and the signs show that their brain isn't fully developed at 16 or 17. It just cannot answer some of those questions. And then at 16 or 17 or 18, you don't have work. Most people don't have work experience, so they can't answer some of those questions. And then we wanted to know if what proof do you have that these tests produce better workers for you? And out of 40 employees, and we got referred to their legal teams and um, uh, we just couldn't get an answer. But we did do our um, research. We did talk to the experts and we found that, you know, some of the tests, personality tests were invalid and might affect people's um, rights. So human rights or the human rights, uh, we talked to the human rights folks who thought some of those questions violated, um, even things around disabilities, uh, which, tar which is why Target stopped using their tests because they, they had a, a, a lawsuit that um, that forced them to change their test. But a lot of young people, you can't answer those questions. So we kept hearing from the field, we sent tons of young people to fill out these applications, they can't get the job. So in the investigation, what we found is that places like um, McDonald's and a lot of food and hospitality places were hiring less people under 21 and more people over 21. More people over 21, are more likely to have work experience. So the places where young people could normally get their first work experience, which is usually in these kind of places, they were working in these places less. And so we became really concerned that these tests were serving as a barrier. HBO did a documentary on this. Um, um, I should know the name. I don't know the name at the moment, but it's called Persona. And it really looked at how unfair these tests are and how they serve as screening and screen out people. So these tests screen out a lot of young people from, from getting into the jobs that they want. So that's one barrier. Another barrier is um, young people, um, especially in America, you know, there are about 70 million people across the country that have great work experience, but they don't have a bachelor's degree. And the bachelor's degree is the entry point for a lot of higher paying jobs. And so part of what we've been talking about is a new national initiative called 110, and it's focused on um, hiring a million black talent over the next 10 years. Um, the, the couple of big corporations got together, recognized that in America, we have a lot of talented black people, but they don't have bachelor's degree. Like part, they're part of the 70 million people and they made this commitment. All these jobs are higher wage jobs. They pay $63,000 a year to start. That's the baseline for any of these jobs. 
So what happens now is that, you know, any young person is 18 to 21 who have a lot of good experience, who do not have a college degree, um, they don't have to take a personality assessment test. They just have to upload their resume on the on the 110 platform and it matches them to a job. And if they're black um, and it matches, once they finish some preliminary review on the back end, you're going to get interviewed and you're going to get a job. So we think that this great, this um, softening of bachelor's degree is a barrier. You know, a lot of black folks, a lot of black women go to college, but a lot of black men don't go to college. Um, and so and a lot of young Americans are really concerned about these ridiculous school loans that they have to pay back. And so they don't really go to college and they're trying to figure out how do I go to a short-term training program that could get me a market demand certificate that could get me a high paying jobs without having the burden of loan. So there, you know, there are, there are not a lot of policies, public policies, but I have to say on the private side, on the corporate side, there's been a definite movement towards hiring these young people and hiring these young people without a college degree and hiring, you know, black talent, which is, you know, in New York City, which have some of the largest, uh, highest wage black people are, are working here in New York City um, and have some of the greatest opportunity to access higher wage jobs here in New York City. So this is a nationwide project, the 110 project last year. Um, in his first year, 17,000 black people got jobs. None pay before six, below $63,000 a year. So we're really optimistic about some of the push on the corporate side that are built in their ESG and diversity, equity, and inclusion um, work. And this recognition that we have this talent, call them opportunity youth, call them disconnected youth. They're heavily concentrated in black and brown communities. Um, and if America is going to succeed, um, it's going to have to dig in and, and figure out how it engages um, these young people and get them into the talent pipeline. So, you know, lastly, I want to talk about workforce development in general, right? Yes. We're coming out of the space, out of COVID, and particularly where there are communities that were hurting before the pandemic, specifically talking about small rural communities, southern communities, communities that are not, you know, that had a divestment in terms of big corporate entities where lots of people worked, you know, certainly closed and disappeared over my lifetime be because of those factories and jobs going overseas and things of that nature. I'm of the belief that while I am a huge supporter of Black entrepreneurship, as an entrepreneur myself who started multiple, you know, uh, entities, but that alone is not going to get us out of the crisis that we are in because, you know, small businesses going to scale doesn't employ the amount of people that we need to be employed in our communities, right? So there needs to be some massive focus on workforce that is on the federal and on the state level in order to get people to work, in order to people get people wages that allow them to support themselves and their families. There was some news um, earlier, a, a couple of months ago, about, you know, Black America having the, who had previously, as we know, have the highest unemployment, starting to see some gains post-pandemic. But, you know, that only includes the people that are, quote, actively looking for work, right, <laughs> that the government can quantify. We all know people 
<laughs> like in our communities, in our neighborhoods that are not in that actively looking for work category. So how, from your experience, having worked in this field for some time, how do we get there? How do we get our communities there? So, you know, it, I, I do think, you know, from a, a, a young adult perspective, you know, we, we think that the there needs to be an, what we call an econo- equitable economic recovery. Um, for this age group, whether they're rural or they're urban-based, um, and that that needs to be centered in their voice and their needs, and that um, that needs to be centered around investing in collaboration across different sectors that may need to get together to really address and respond to some of the issues that we're having nationwide around um, this group of people. And I know that rural, we tend not to talk about um, the rural populations. You know, we work with, um, through a collaborative through the Aspen Institute um, with about 21 communities across the country. Some of those are rural and, you know, they have issues around, in, you know, have their lack of access to internet, which is really kind of basic core services, I think every single citizen should have access to. Um, and they have lack access to high-speed internet in a lot of places, um, which really affect the ability to even do um, you know, remote learning or remote training. Um, I think that some of those things need to train. So I think that we need a more intentional approach to um, recovery that is centered um, around equity and that um, you know, young people's have to be part of the group, as I mentioned before, that really um, comes up and sit at the table and say, you know, here's what we think will work. I think it's going to be hard. I think we need everybody to your specific question involved in this, right? We need um, the private sector to play a role. Um, We need the public sector to play a role. We need philanthropy to play a role. Um, And we need the type of investment um, that is going to be transformational. You know, a lot of time, um, public and private investment comes into community and it's one project here, one project there. Um, if we're trying to really build an you know, uh, intergenerational um, economic mobility, uh, part of the Georgetown report really talk about the lack of economic mobility for young people and the communities where they live. If we want to change those things, then we have to in- bring the type of investment into those communities that will help transform what happens on the ground. So it's not these these one-off investment. You know, government do these programs for two years, philanthropy do these programs one-off, I'll give you money every year to do this. Um, But when a community develops a comprehensive plan, like they're doing some of our rural communities, that they're doing some of our native um, American communities, like they do in some of our local communities like Brownsville, New York, you know, they develop these plans that they think, if invested inappropriately, this could be transformational for a community. Um, they don't get the investment. So I do think at this one, there's not a lack of ideas. There are not a lot of people who want to do things, who want to change their communities. There isn't. There are not a lack of people really interested in the overall economic wellness of the United States and that they participate um, and benefit from those changes. It's, there's a lack of investment in those communities. So if you ask me, what is it that we really should be thinking about now? It's not coming up with new ideas. There are not a lack of those. 
it's appropriate investment and not just year in, year out, but multi-year investment that really invest with the idea that we want to transform a community. This is what the community says it needs for its transformation. Let's let's get them the support they need and let's see how this works out. We haven't really done that at all. Yeah. 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 Well, Marjorie, thank you so very much for sharing all of that. I mean, lastly, I wouldn't want to leave people with this information and not some something that they could do about this. Yes. What is, you know, whether they're listening from, you know, New York to California to Philadelphia or Baltimore, what are some things, one or two things that you think people should question or look around their community to get involved in this issue? Um, I think, you know, um, what we found is often people understand that we have a problem but they don't know the depth or breadth of the problem. They just know they have a problem. I think it's important for you, for people to find out exactly what the problem is and be able to name it. And so if you mentioned Philadelphia, if you're in Philadelphia, you know, call your Philadelphia Youth Network and ask them, what is their research showing about communities across Philadelphia? If you're in California, call the COIN Network. Um, you know, they will tell you what's happening with our young people across many communities in, um, in California. So look at the places in your local community that is most likely to have, because you have to show up with data that will have the accurate information that you can speak to, that you can bring to the table so that you can have a better understanding of what the issue is. So you can go to your local legislators, your local big corporate, or your local philanthropy to make the argument that these are the problems that we have. Here's the data that supports it here's what we're looking to do in our community. So that would be my recommendation. Thank you so very much for coming to the front of the class. And, you know, I want to have you back because I want a, a panel of you to talk about, because when we're talking about, you know, workforce development or economic issues and things that I do, we talk about it in silos, right? It's just like, what do we need to do to get adults and then young people and sort of whatever, rather than coming to the table co collectively and saying, yeah. how can we, you know, build policy? How can we build things in our community that are not siloed, but, but work together, right? Yeah. That can be more economical and also work better for our community. And, you know, Yes, there needs to be some things that are just for young people, just for seniors yeah. and things of that nature. But if we're talking about building the workforce of our future, you know, that includes people who are present right now in addition to young people. So I would love to have you back to talk about that path for it as well. Absolutely. We call it place-based strategies. Yes. Place, and we'll, I'll be happy to have that conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see? Your life was the only gift I ever need to be free. It's amazing with you. Welcome back. See, I knew I wasn't going to have time. <laughs> to talk to multiple people this morning. Sorry. Well, you know, I'm going to bring Dr. Alex from the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. He's the director of the Workforce 
policy program at the Joint Center. And I'm going to talk to him about the report that the Joint Center just put out talking about not only policy reforms on shaping workforce development, but also about job justice, about worker justice. Well, yeah, worker justice. So we center the workers and making sure that we strengthen economic opportunity for those who are looking for employment and are underemployed. So Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies will be with us next week. And I will talk, do a deep dive, talking more about workforce development and some policy reforms and advocacy that could help transform that. And specifically, not only on the federal level, because I feel like a lot of times, a lot of you are looking for the president to do stuff. Well, you know, President Biden needs to do this, but Congress needs to do that. But really looking at our state and municipal governments, because after Congress allocates this money, the money then trickles down to the states and the governor and your state legislature determine all of that. Case in point, and, and we'll do this next week. I'll do a, a, a follow the money focus. The infrastructure bill that was passed in Congress, massive amount of money. Some of the money, yes, is going, a small percentage is going to agencies like the transportation and others to be able to do some of the projects that the federal government needs to do. But majority of that money is going to states. And then the states have to determine, the states being the governor and the state legislature, and then sometimes, then further down to municipal government or county governments to be able to determine how the how this money actually gets spent, who gets hired, who gets the contracts and all of that. So it's not like Joe Biden is signing people's paycheck, at least in not majority of the infrastructure bill. So that money goes down to the states. Then the governor and the state legislature negotiate how that money is spent, let's say, in Arkansas or Iowa or even in the state of New York and New Jersey. And then it may put out more money to the city or to the town, right? And so that it, it goes down further from that. So that that follow the money process. And I did this during COVID where I talked about the education dollars that the federal government through Congress sent to states and following how that money was spent. There was actually a website set up where people could go to put in what state they're in and see how those dollars were spent. So after Congress, after the president do their job in terms of allocating the money, it still goes further down the line. And that's why it's important to be engaged and active, or if not more engaged and active in terms of what's happening in your state and in your local government. So we'll talk about that when we come back next Sunday, because I ran out of time. It's okay. We'll talk about following those dollars. And then we'll also talk to Dr. Alex about workforce policy programs. And Dr. Alex from the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. When we come back next next Sunday here on Sunday Civics. Have a great one. Oh,